Welcome. Today is a very hot 4th of July 2015 here in North Idaho where we have not turned down our air conditioners. And while others are celebrating the founding of the American Republic, we're going to take a moment here and pause and reconsider some, uh, some of the events which were taken for, our history books taken for granted, are wonderful, glorious, amazing, unique, exceptional. And we're going to stop and see, is that really true? Okay, and joining us today is Charles Cullum, a writer, researcher, author, author of one of my most favorite books, Muse in the Bottle, I might add, and a monarchist. So, Charles, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. First, uh, if you could, uh, tell us a brief bit about yourself and how you got interested in monarchy and other issues related to this topic. Mm, well, I suppose in a nutshell, um, part of it was uh, family in the sense that my father was French-Canadian, third generation in this country, very loyal, World War II vet, but with a great love of the House of Bourbon and the Stuarts. We've got some Irish and some Scottish blood in the uh, family, as most French-Canadians do. And my mother's family were Austrian and English, and um, so I, uh, I was brought up uh, from her with a uh, fondness for the Habsburgs. That was all, I suppose you might say that that kind of mitigated the uh, the knee-jerk antipathy to monarchy that we're supposed to have as Americans. Uh, if you remember the schoolhouse rocks, uh, No More Kings, which uh, I, always, I always play on the 4th of July to remind myself. Um, so that was the start of it, I guess you'd say. And then when I was in high school, I began doing some reading and all that. I think the first book that treated monarchy especially deposed monarchs from a uh, uh, sympathetic point of view, was Jeffrey Roca's Kings Without Thrones. It came out in the 50s. With that, further study of the faith, Christ the King, history, which showed me that um, usually the Catholic monarchists were the sturdiest of Catholics, and Catholic Republicans, with a small r, were often not. It was, a, it was a whole number of things. If you were to ask me when did I admit to myself that I was a monarchist, I was a senior in high school. Uh, and let me say, too, that it wasn't that I was a particularly tremendous Anglophile, uh, but no French-Canadian who still holds the faith can forget that we have that faith in great part because of George III and the Quebec Act. So we have the kind of the irony where um, I always had a warm feeling for the Jacobites because of the drop of Scots on my father's side. But by the same token, it was the fact that George III uh, really was the guarantor of our freedoms. So, which freedoms, by the way, are uh, denounced in Orwellian terms of the Declaration of Independence. So, it was a number of things. Um, and, of course, monarchy means a number of different things. Uh, obviously, there are some monarchies I wouldn't want to live under, like the Ottoman Sultan or the Manchu Emperor. But having said that, I think you'd have to admit that they were both better than either Ataturk or uh, Mao. <laughs> so it's and then again, when you say when you say you're a monarchist, does that mean that uh, I'd like to see a monarchy in these United States? Well, certainly, if we had an hereditary monarchy here, it would be a lot less oppressive than the president we have now. I suspect that if we had an hereditary monarch with just the powers of the Constitution given a president. That's probably all anybody would let him get away with. But because we elect the chief executive, we have the feeling 
that we have some control over him. And as I think generations of folk who have fought and died in undeclared wars might say, not necessarily. But that having been said, uh, don't expect me to give you a model for an American monarchy. I don't got one. Right. <laughs> well, we weren't going to bring that up today necessarily. Um, so the first question then is, the American Revolution is often described as a struggle against tyranny. Or alternatively, to maintain self-government that had already existed in the colonies from taxational tyranny. Does this conform to the actual state of the colonies in 1765 to 1776? Not really. The real state of the colonies was this. Uh, in each of the 13 colonies, you had, well, let me back up a second. Remember that each of those colonies was very, very different with its own ethnic setup, its own cultural setup, its own particular class system that was peculiar to that colony. But every colony had its own oligarchy, so they varied. In the New England states, they tended to be uh, shipping people, shipping magnates, merchants, folk of that sort. In the South, the dominant folk tended to be planters, you know, the, the Washingtons and Jeffersons. But in every colony, these little oligarchies were the people that ran the colonial assemblies, for whom only a minority, the exact size of that minority varied, of white males could vote in each of the 13 colonies. It was those assemblies which were, well, on the one hand, definitely what we would call today non-democratic, on the other hand, dominated for the most part by the people who become our founding fathers. They were the ones who levied the vast majority of the taxes that the uh, people paid. It's an important thing to remember. The very men who argued for no taxation without representation when it came to the crown were, in fact, themselves practitioners of it. That's something that should never, ever be forgotten. The second thing that should be borne in mind is that, uh, on the one hand, Britain had fought a series of wars uh, for the colonies, which had cost a bundle and fell upon the backs of the British taxpayer. They were the ones paying. And ministry after ministry, after the end of the French Indian War, struggled to kind find some kind of way to get the colonies to pay a symbolic amount. It was never suggested by anybody, any time, that the colonies should actually pull their fair share in either the monies that had been expended on their behalf or in continuing defense, i.e. the Royal Navy, the forts on the frontier, that kind of thing. Nobody ever suggested that. What was wanted was a symbolic amount that would allow the British taxpayer to feel not quite so done in on their behalf. So, um, every British ministry, every government that came along after 1765 tried different measures. And the oligarchy in each colony would have nothing to do with it. We ain't paying nothing, even though they were the recipients of such taxes. And of course, the, the, the cream of the jest was the tax on tea. The reason why this was fun was because the well, the British government were faced with a double problem. One was this need that I mentioned. But there was a second problem, and that was that in the early 1770s, the East India Company was on the verge of bankruptcy. Now, what that would have meant had they gone bankrupt is that the Crown would have had to take over the governing of India then, which would have been very expensive, and yet another enormous uh, outlay of money. So they came up with a bright idea. We will sell 
we will not levy a tax on East India tea going into the colonies. Twofold benefit there. They would get a new market for tea and they would be saved financially, that is to say the company, but because it would be cheaper than the smuggled tea that people like John Hancock sold. It would drive the smugglers out of business without having to tear, try to chase them down. So it seemed like a win-win situation. However, what they perhaps didn't really realize was that men like John Hancock were already predominant in power. Don't forget who the four wealthiest men of the colonies were in 1775. They were George Washington, John Hancock, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, and Philip Schuyler. So you look at that and you begin to realize that the revolution was not this simple struggle for liberty and for freedom against taxation that we're told. In point of fact, and everyone will admit this, the colonies were never so lightly taxed as they were before the revolution. In fact, to pay for the revolution, uh, they immediately began, the, the uh, new state congresses immediately began levying enormous taxes. And if you may recall, um, immediately after the revolution, 1786, Shays Rebellion took place in uh, Massachusetts because the taxes had gotten so high. So, again, I hate to shed reality on any issue, let alone this one, but it just isn't true what we're taught. Well, certainly, and a lot of modern scholarship is bringing this up. Of course, it takes a long time for the modern scholarship to make its way into the textbooks. But uh, a recent book, a few years back, um, <clears throat> it's called Unruly Americans and the Origins of the Constitution by Woody Holton. And there, he's not even making an argument against the founding, per se. He's trying to show why the Constitution was written the way it was. And so, so he's ending up defending the Constitution. But what he says there is, is illustrative of that. He says, quote, to finance their war against British, quote, taxation without representation, unquote, Americans had committed themselves to higher taxes than they had ever faced as British colonists. After the war, taxes in most states remained three or four times higher than colonial levels. In the colony of Rhode Island, annual revenue needs had seldom exceeded 2,000 pounds. Two years after the signing of the Paris Peace Treaty, however, the Assembly imposed a tax with a face value of 20,000 pounds and an actual value in gold and silver of about 11,000 pounds. In 1786, the year of Shays' Rebellion, the portion of Massachusetts farmers' income consumed by taxation was four to five times higher than it had been under British rule. Quote, unquote, and that's page 29, if anyone has that book. Unruly Americans, actually a fairly good read. So it, it, it certainly they certainly were the lightest taxed subjects in the whole of the British Empire. And sure. yet, they're the only ones who revolt. And that's a... Did the British throw the war, do you think? That is a very good question, and I would say the answer is partially yes. And I'll tell you why I say this. It is because, you know, I've written about the, uh, about the war in other places, and I've always referred to it as our first civil war. And that's very true, I believe. But it was also a civil war in Britain, although not a violent one. I mean, there were some riots, the Gordon riots, but basically... Um, the king had set himself a sort of program, if you will, and that was to restore the balance in British government, the, the balance of mixed government, that his own uh, great-grandfather and grandfather 
uh, to say nothing of William of Orange, had um, disturbed. Don't forget that his great-grandfather, George I, spoke no English, which is why he didn't go to cabinet meetings, unlike Queen Anne. It was why he allowed the First Lord of the Treasury, who soon came to be called the Prime, the Prime Minister, to run everything. And this had continued under George II. But George III was very different. He was, as they say, the first to glory in the name of Britain. English was his first language. He had very little interest in the electorate of Hanover. He uh, also was the first to have any interest in Catholic emancipation. He was, for instance, the first since James II to receive Catholic noblemen at court. He was very popular in Ireland amongst the Catholics, not the Protestants. And so this was a man who was very, very different from his forebears. Uh, Christopher Hollis, in his uh, very good book, which I recommend to you highly, The American Heresy, calls George III a Jacobite without courage of conviction, <laughs> in the sense that to some degree, he wanted to accomplish what the Stuarts had wanted to accomplish, which was to restore the ancient constitution of the three kingdoms. Now, having said that, it took him 10 years before he could get enough, as they say, king's friends in Parliament to be able to appoint a prime minister who was amenable to him. And that, of course, was Lord North. And he came in in 1770. And the period, therefore, from 1770 to 1782, when North went out of power, is called the personal rule, when George had the most control over things that he would ever have again, before or after. Now, the Whigs were keen on seeing North out, and they were very keen on restoring their own control. You've heard the phrase, the Whig oligarchy. Well, that's who they were, the great noblemen and so on. The King's allies, the Tories, were squirearchy, um, lesser folk. There's another book I recommend to you, um, Kevin Wood's The Cousins Wars, which I think fairly convincingly sees the Reformation, the, uh, the British Civil Wars, uh, as they call the Wars of the Three Kingdoms now, the Jacobite Wars, the American Revolution, the American Civil War, as a series of conflicts, each connected to, to each other. We'll link those books up in the uh, interview notes, too, afterwards. Yeah. Those, uh, the, the, uh, the truth of the matter is that those wars transformed a small kingdom at the edge of Europe from a little Catholic island, in the end, to the vast, secularizing Anglosphere we enjoy today. Well, anyway, um... The thing was that the king sent to America the most brilliant uh, general he had. Amherst wouldn't take it. Clive committed suicide. So he sent Sir William Howe. And Howe was a Whig. He was a member of Parliament, and he was actually an opponent of the king. And I suppose that both the king and Lord North gambled with his sense of patriotism would outdo his sense of party loyalty. In this, I think you were mistaken. Why? Two major reasons. One, he allowed Washington to escape on numerous occasions when he had him in his hand. The war went over just like that. Secondly, uh, he went off to conquer Philadelphia when he was needed to go north to meet with Burgoyne in Albany. <laughs> 
Now, mind you, uh, I'm simplifying it tremendously, and there are a lot of other factors that I'm not even touching on. But it is, for what it's worth, my considered opinion that how, to some degree, through it. That by itself, however, even then, there wouldn't have won. What made the difference was the intervention of France, Spain, the Netherlands, and Haider Ali, the uh, king of Mysore in India, uh, which turned it into, a, into a, a world war. The British found themselves fighting not just in the colonies, but in the West Indies, in India, in Africa, and on the high seas. Uh, and they couldn't win. Not that kind of war. Then, the, the last nail in the coffin was Catherine the Great's forming the League of the Armed Neutrality, which brought in uh, Russia, the Scandinavian countries, the Holy Roman Empire, Naples, uh, into a block uh, that are finally, toward the very end, threatened to declare war on Hamas if the war didn't end. So, that, I suspect, is the reason for the defeat. And it had a rather unpleasant outcome. Actually, it had several rather unpleasant outcomes in the larger sense. On the one hand, George III, because France and Spain came to the aid of uh, rebelling subjects who wanted to establish a republic, George III felt betrayed, and it turned him against Catholic emancipation. That, for us, for Catholics, that's the... I mean, the irony is that in the colonies, anti-Catholic as the leadership had been, with France and Spain coming to their aid, they couldn't stay that way. And, of course, we uh, we entered into full civil rights rather earlier here than they did in Britain. The contrary wise, I think a very good argument could be made that Catholic emancipation was delayed 20 or 30 years, at least, by the intervention of France and Spain in the Revolution. So you have this... Weird sort of uh, sort of chicken and egg thing going on. That was the one thing. The second thing, of course, is that France went bankrupt on the war. Now it won the war, uh, and partly because of a number of reforms that Louis XVI had um, initiated in the French military and the French Navy. Uh, it's kind of ironic that he was the architect of the first French victory against Britain in um, about a hundred years. The, if you want to know the victor, quote-unquote, of the American Revolution, it was Louis XVI. But it destroyed him. Right. And did see, I'm sorry, so you mentioned, uh, of course, the, the War of the Three Kingdoms, right. the, uh, the English Civil War, of course, okay. as uh, it's treated in histories. And, and you also mentioned Catholicism in the American Revolution. Now, Catholicism plays a huge part in the English Civil War, even though Catholics are a very small part of the population at that time in England, and even less in Scotland. And in the colonies, Amer Catholics had fled. Maryland, obviously, originally set up as a Catholic colony. And yet, and of course, that's overturned after the Glorious Revolution, so-called. So that now you have a situation where it's more or less publicly illegal, depending on the charter of that colony. So what was the state of the Catholic Church and the colonies in general before the Revolution? And what kind of persecution did it face, given this public illegality in England? Well, firstly, the, um, in, uh, in Maryland, they had had a number of disabilities placed on them, but the faith was not illegal. Not quite. They had some disabilities, but it wasn't illegal. The reason for that was Queen Anne who in 1708, I think, uh, 
when the Maryland Assembly passed the last of the penal laws, as it were, completely outlawing the faith, uh, the Catholics of Maryland appealed to Queen Anne, and she disallowed the bill. She vetoed it. So, uh, as a result, while they couldn't have uh, huge public churches, they were able to worship privately. And so the oldest parishes in Maryland to this day, in Southern Maryland, are all descendants of these mass house arrangements where they were either uh, in a great estate or alongside of this sort of thing. The Jesuits in Maryland were the, the backbone of the uh, clergy, the English Jesuits, uh, were the backbone of the clergy in, the, uh, in Maryland to some degree in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania and Delaware, the faith was completely legal. There were no inhibitions at all because of the pens. And in fact, when Old St. Joseph's in Philadelphia was built in 1733, it was the first legal English-speaking Catholic church in the British Empire built since James II. Um, and there, you know, Catholics were, were able to live. Uh, outside of there, there were a few in Virginia, a few in New Jersey, sort of adjoining areas, a few in New York. There had been quite a number in New York, especially Spanish slaves. And then in the 1740s, they had the Negro plot, as it was called. And that showed, um, that featured Catholics, uh, particularly black Catholics, being uh, hung and uh, otherwise dealt with unpleasantly. The other major source of uh, Catholics, there are only about 25,000 on the eve of the revolution, all told. The other major source was the Mohawk Valley of New York which is kind of an interesting story. Uh, Sir William Johnson was the King's Secretary of Indian Affairs, brother-in-law of Joseph Brandt, the Mohawk chief, and he had a huge set of estates in the Mohawk Valley, in addition to his friendship with the Indians. So he brought over Irish and Scottish settlers and Germans to settle the Mohawk Valley, and his tenants, a lot of them were Catholics. So he brought over an Irish priest, Father John McKenna, who's actually an important figure in the story, because he would become the first Catholic chaplain of the British Army since James II. But uh, the, the, the totality of these scattered peoples were under the Vicar Apostolic of London, who at the time was a man called Bishop Chaloner. And what there, um, what there was of any oversight uh, was through him. The other thing to bear in mind was that all of the appointments in the English-speaking world were uh, filtered through Cardinal York, the brother of Monty Prince Charlie. Uh, whenever the king, the uh, Pope, rather, was interested in appointing either a Scots or British, or a Scots or English, British Apostolic, or Irish bishops, he went to Cardinal York. And that, in a nutshell, was where we were. A few of us were extremely wealthy, to include the Carrolls, a uh, big Catholic family in Maryland. Uh, most of us were the middling sort of poor. And that, too, comes into what the disposition of the Catholic community was in the Revolution. Because, despite what certain historians like Gilmar Shea and people like that said uh, in the 19th century, the division of the Catholic community was very much like that of the other minority communities in the Revolution. Um... I suppose at this point it might be useful to have a look for the mention, unless I'm anticipating you, at who ended up being the Loyalists. Yeah, go ahead. 
because that's that's a very important part of understanding the revolution. Obviously, some of them were office holders and all that who just felt they couldn't break their oaths to the king. But in terms of who the rank and file were, it gets really interesting. Just as every colony was different in other ways, they were different in who the loyalists were and who the rebels were. And when I say were, I mean tended to be, because there are exceptions. Everything I'm going to tell you, you'll find exceptions on either side, just so you'll know. But basically, for cultural and ethnic and religious communities, the more assimilated they were, the more the closer they were to the centers of power, the likely they were to be rebels. Because remember, who brought us the revolution? It was the pre-existing colonial oligarchies. So those Catholics or Dutch or Germans or whomever who were closer to the centers of power were likely to share the views of those people. The less so, the less so. So, for instance, in New York, with the Dutch, uh, the more assimilated, that is to say, the less Dutch-speaking the Dutch were, the more they tended to favor the rebels. The less assimilated, the more they tended to favor the king. Amongst the Catholic community, uh, certainly a lot of the leadership, the Carols, uh, Barry, Moylan, people like that, tended to be rebel. But the rank and file tended to be loyalist. And that is something we don't talk about, but it's very true. Similarly, in the southern colonies, the Church of England was established. And Presbyterians tended to be Scots traders, who, to whom the planters were often debt. So what do you find? In the south, the Anglican planters tended to be rebels. And the Presbyterian traders tended to be loyalists. But in New England where the Anglicans were a struggling minority and where there'd been a lot of uh, friction, shall we say, over uh, Anglicans converting Congregationalists to Anglicanism. There, the Calvinist Congregationalists, just as Calvinists as the Presbyterians of the South, they tended to be rebel, but the Anglicans tended to be loyalists. And then you add on top of it, just to make the thing even more confusing for you, Areas that were poorly represented in the assembly or somewhat neglected tended to be loyalist. Those areas that were not tended to be rebel. A good example, if you remember um, North Carolina, they had the War of the Regulators in the early 1770s. Well, the Regulators were a protest movement against the uh, concentration of power amongst the wealthy planters in the east of North Carolina. So they rebelled, Governor Tryon, the royal governor, went out, he defeated them but they were still very discontented. Tryon goes on to New York, he's replaced with Josiah Martin as governor. The revolution breaks out. Who do most of the regulators side with? The king. Why? Because really it was not, the, the regulators had not really been rebelling against the king before. They'd been rebelling against the assembly. And it was the people who ran the assembly before, now running the Congress, who were telling them, let's unite and throw off tyranny which they didn't really go for. And there is one more interesting point to be brought up in this area, and that is that of those 13 original states, at the time of our Civil War, in the North, the areas that intended to be in the northern of the 13 states, New England, New York, New Jersey, and so on, the areas that intended to be loyalist during the Revolution tended to be Copperhead, that is, pro-Southern or at least anti-war, in the Civil War. But in the South, the areas that had tended to be loyalist tended to be unionist. 
during the Civil War. Why? Same thing. The man who comes to you and already dominates you, already taxes you, already is in charge of you, says, come on, boys, let's go for the glorious cause. I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I, oh, let's, let's sit back and think about this a little bit. Now, let me get this straight. You already run my show. You already tax me. You already dominate my life. And now you want me to die for you? You're nuts. Only more people thought that way today. Well, you see, this is the problem with what we think is representative government. It gives us an illusion of inclusion. That's not bad, an illusion of inclusion. We're not. And we never could be. We never shall be. You see, I'm going to say something heretical right now, and I hope no one calls the secular equivalent of the Inquisition. But it's this. Every society has the rulers of the ruled. And the rulers are by nature a minority, the ruled are a majority. Every society has a state church, an animating principle that sets down the rules. Uh, with the communists, it was, well, communism. There is no God and Lenin is his prophet. Uh, but it acted as a religion. Well, we have one, too. I mean, it's very hard to define because uh, it's so gooey. But nevertheless, we have one, and we have a ruling dominant class, and we all do what they tell us. Um, five old men on the Supreme Court can make us all um, dance and drag. Well, that is, that is the nature of things. But when you live in a society that pretends it's not like that, it becomes very difficult. The pretense that you're included, that you're part of it, that these represent you, that pretense is really very dangerous because it makes for literally irresponsible government. It means that actually the people that rule your life are not responsible at all to anyone. Uh, if it's a question of doing something you don't want, they cloak themselves in the law. And if it's a question of doing something uh, that is plainly illegal, they cloak themselves in the popular will. But somehow they themselves are never responsible for anything. Just following orders, as another set of people once said at another time. Right. Or such as Robespierre at the very last moment when uh, they're breaking down the doors, is they're, they're saying, should we sign in the name of the people? And he says, well, I don't know. It's the first time he doesn't have anything to say. Yeah, maybe we should sign in the name of the people. I don't right before the people break in and shoot him. That is, uh, that is democracy on the order of a New England town meeting, but altered somewhat. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, those sorts of things do happen, but they don't happen often. And when they do happen, someone quickly, quickly takes charge. Nature avoids a vacuum. So, because let's face it, rule, rulership, governance is a skill like the arts, like sports. And the vast majority of us don't have it, and we don't have the necessary ruthlessness to exercise it. Now, what makes one society different from another, I think, is what the ruling class thinks of itself, and what the state church tells you, what they teach. Give me a bunch who believe they're going to fry in hell forever if they rule me badly. That's what I'd like. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean they won't make terrible mistakes. That doesn't mean they won't do awful things. Um, because 
as my late father used to say when I asked him, Daddy, why is it that you've got some people in history, some great rulers, they did wonderful things, they did horrible things. He said, well, son, let's take you. Let's pretend that you weren't a kid who's just capable of making his family annoyed or making his friends happy. Let's pretend you were you with just the same kind of mood swings. Only you're in power. Well, when you're happy, schools are founded and grain is flowing and there's dancing in the streets. And when you're unhappy, people die. That's the nature of things, you see. As I referred to it earlier, I mean, I believe that part of our imperial presidency, the reason why it's so much more powerful than any monarchy I've ever heard of or read about, to include our Ottoman sultans and Manchu emperors, is that this illusion that by being voted for, they somehow are part of us. We all swallow it. We swallow it along with the myth that we don't have a class structure. And that's a particularly American superstition. You can, you can see it by um, the word classless. In England, it means egalitarian. But as you know, and as every red-blooded American boy knows, we don't have a class structure here. So here, classless just means vulgar. You don't got no class. And that's why, you know, when I heard John Major saying, and in this country, we shall build a classless society. <laughs> no, that's, that's easy enough. Just, you know, don't brush your teeth. Uh, use the wrong fork. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Well, British historian Simon Shama had noted in his one, in one book of his called Rough Crossings in, in Passing, and then in another book, or not another book, a TV documentary series on Britain for the BBC. He characterized the American Revolution as something that looks like a chapter out of English history books, namely, as we mentioned earlier, the English Civil War, <clears throat> with the Hanoverians taking the part of the Stuarts and the revolutionaries taking the part of Parliament. Now, in right. that, that conflict, the English Civil War, there is a lot to do about Catholics, starting on this, before the conflict began in the 1630s, during the period of Charles I's personal rule. And during that period, of course, the, the, the parliamentarian faction, which was sensing its growing power under James I, sensing growing power in the early years of Charles, especially when they got rid of Buckingham, is now, you know, kind of shoved off to the side. So they're, they're, they're wealthier members like Pym start weaving a whole bunch of conspiracy theories that come into pamphlets. And, and of course, in here, I'm going to be conspiracy theorist myself in the right sense as a factualist, looking for what you can actually find. But he did it as propaganda. Catholics are going to take over the country. Jesuits are going to come in, take away your Bibles, make you worship the Virgin Mary. And these things were also preached in a lot of churches, especially as Bishop Loud comes in trying to, his opposition to resurgent Catholicism, which was to Catholicize the Church of England again, bring back altars, bring back rude screens, which the, the Puritans really did not like, even though neither Laud nor Charles I were, at, were particularly Catholic in doctrine. And so as a result, you have this wide conspiracy. A lot of it centers on the Jesuits. Well, the American Civil War, do we also see a lot of that same propaganda coming out, especially references back to Pope Day, that is Guy Fox Day. You have Protestants coming to the, the pulpits in Philadelphia and, and other places saying that the Stamp Act is a, is a frontal attack for the, the king to use those popish slaves that he's liberated in Quebec to take away our Bibles and make us worship the Virgin Mary and the Pope. It seems like it's all the same propaganda being recycled. It, it is. Uh, I, I would have to. I would have to say though that uh, actually, with Charles the First, he was a lot more Catholic than people ever give him credit for. 
if you read his correspondence with successive popes, it uh, becomes kind of apparent that uh, he would have uh, he would have been very keen on ending the uh, disunity between Canterbury and Rome. He had one major drawback, and it was not the real presence which he apparently believed in, and it wasn't relics which he apparently venerated. It was the belief that the Pope could depose sovereigns, and that he could not accept. But uh, it was interesting when he died, when he was uh, murdered by uh, Cromwell and the gang, as a name for a rock band, if ever there was one. But uh, anyway, there's a problem with having too many disparate things running around in your head. You, you find connections that aren't there. But anyway, uh, Charles I, uh, fascinating character because he said when he died, I die a, a member of the Church of England as my father left it to me. He never mentioned being Protestant, which was in fact how real Anglicans described themselves in those days. Other people, Calvinists, Lutherans, Puritans, whatever, they would call by their particular name. Protestant then meant Anglican. But he never called himself that. So I mention this because it's an interesting area of study that's been neglected. Also during his trial, it was thrown up at him that he negotiated with the Pope for a union. He never denied it. <laughs> interesting. So, also I should mention that uh, Archbishop Laud was offered the Cardinal's hat by the Pope, which no. he... Laud, in a debate with a, a Jesuit named Fisher, who was in prison, uh, they, of course, the whole debate centered on Bellarmine, and I studied that debate really closely because I'm translating St. Robert Bellarmine, and one of the things he said was, if I could accept the authority of the Pope, then I should become a Catholic without further ado, but that'll never go down with me until I don't, is what he said. Yeah, and he, of the two, Laud and Charles, Laud was by far the more anti-Catholic. But the fact that they even thought to offer him a, uh, a cardinal's hat is interesting. But that's a whole other discussion for another day. Uh, for the immediate, absolutely. Um, what's interesting, too, is that the areas in, in the British Isles that had been Jacobite, had been Cavalier, tended to be anti-American in, in the American War. The areas that had been Parliamentarian and that had been Whig, tended to support the rebels. That was even true in England. And the same pattern, incidentally, would hold true to a great degree during our Civil War. Uh, what's interesting, too, is that those Jacobites who were here in this, in this country uh, tended to be loyalists as well. The Scots Highlanders who settled in the uh, backcountry of North Carolina, including Flora MacDonald, who is the lady, you may recall, who had brought uh, who had brought Bonnie Prince Charlie over to Sky, dressed mm -hmm. as her. Uh, she, um, she and her husband were loyalists, and they they set up the fiery cross and raised the Scots uh, to fight for the king, and were defeated at Moores Creek Bridge, because apparently claymores, despite their various other skills, uh, the claymore sword is not really that good against uh, firepower. Not generally. No. And it didn't, hasn't worked elsewhere, it didn't work at Moore's Creek Bridge. But at any rate, uh, yeah, it was, it was very much in that mode. But the important thing to remember, too, though, is that the anti-Catholic element of it, which was very much inspired by the Quebec Act, that uh, there was a very two-faced piece to it, because the Continental Congress sent out a letter to the uh, the people of England, which spoke of the king conspiring with these evil people who drowned your islands in blood and blah, 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 blah. 
and then a letter to the people of Quebec telling them our uh, difference in religion shouldn't matter because of our shared love of liberty and blah, 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 blah. The problem was that Bishop Briand, the Bishop of Quebec, got copies of both letters. Whoops. Whoops, indeed. So, the Canada Congress sent several commissioners up north to uh, try to persuade the Quebecois, or the Canadiens, we have to say, to uh, join the rebellion. And there's a funny story here. Benjamin Franklin was one of them. But with them went Father John Carroll, the leader of the ex-Jesuits in Maryland. Now, Father Carroll uh, gets up there. Bishop Rioff forbids any of his priests to have anything to do with them. And the one priest who put them up, he suspended. Father Carroll, he excommunicated. And there's, keep that in mind, he had a diocesan excommunication. Now, when the bishop excommunicates you, you know that that's not valid in other dioceses. So, unless there's some other specific thing done, if your bishop excommunicates you, bell, book, and candle, you go to the next diocese, you're fine. doesn't apply there. That is why, many years later, when Bishop Carroll, as he became, was Bishop-elect Carroll, wanted to be consecrated a bishop, he had to go to England to be consecrated. He couldn't go to Quebec, which was right there, because he was still excommunicate. Do you know when the excommunication of Bishop John Carroll was lifted in the Archdiocese of Quebec? Never? Two years ago. <laughs> the, uh, I've never heard that before. That's absolutely fascinating. That, that one never makes it into the textbooks or in the discussions in EWTN about our, our, the, the great Catholic roots of America and these other things. Well, it doesn't, and, and it's funny. Uh, it was lifted, certainly, by Cardinal Welle at the request of Cardinal Harvey. It was, well, like six years ago, but anyway, it was done. Uh, so now, if he comes back from the grave, he can offer Mass in Quebec. Uh, but the, the other funny thing about it was that uh, Benjamin Franklin, Carroll was, as I say, the leader of the, of the American clergy, but he agitated very hard after the war was over to keep Cardinal York from having any voice in American appointments. And he did so successfully. Well, that left Pius VI to ask the most famous American of his day, his recommendation. And Benjamin Franklin recommended Father John Carroll. But his reason for doing so was kind of novel. It was because all the time they spent together on the trip to Canada and back, he said Father Carroll never discussed religion with him once. Now that's something, too. I get, And, well, the mold that they want American Catholics to be in. Okay, you've you got to be a good American Catholic. Don't, don't, don't push the, the, the American civic religion too much. Everyone has their own private religion in, in private, and it's fine. And this this novel religious liberty. You, you do what you like, just don't uh, don't be public about it, and pay your taxes and obey the state. And be very public about obeying the state, and everything will be well. It, yeah. Because, see, as in any regime that's ever been, it really is all about obedience. It doesn't matter, really, what you believe. All that matters is that you obey. Ask the Supreme Court. <laughs> Indeed. Now, Catholics weren't the only ones caught up in the American Revolution. There's also the Church of England, which is formally the state church and has a number of churches in this country, both north and south. 
how did the Church of England respond in the Civil War? Did they, you know, rally to king and country, or did they rally to the shot heard around the world, or was it more mixed? Well, it was mixed. I mean, as I mentioned earlier in the uh, in the broadcast, um, the truth of the matter is, is that in the South, where the Church of England was established, and what that meant was that it was the state church of Georgia, of uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland. Uh, there, the vast majority of Anglicans supported the revolution. But they were the wealthy aristocracy. They already ran the colonies. And it had the added benefit of ending all of their debts to uh, uh, London merchants and to those Presbyterian traders I mentioned. Suddenly their debts were wiped out. And when you consider how highly mortgaged that they tended to be, this was a good thing, not a bad thing for them. So that was Anglicans in the South. In the North, it was very different. There, Anglicanism was not established. And in fact, in, um, in uh, New England, it was actually very missionary in the sense of trying to uh, convert Congregationalists to Anglicanism under the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel, which was the London-based missionary society, that, whereas in the South, the Anglican ministers would be paid for by the state. In the North, they were paid for by uh, the SPG. And there they tended to be loyalists because they were a minority and they were already kind of shunted around a bit before the revolution. It's interesting too, The uh, one of the things that occurred before the war broke out was the agitation for an Anglican bishop in America. There were no Anglican bishops here at the time. So what that meant was that if a boy wanted to get uh, ordained into the Anglican ministry, he had to go to England. It meant that nobody was confirmed unless they went to England. It was all, it was like that. What did happen was that the governor in the South, the governors of the colonies, uh, acted as commissaries for the Archbishop of Canterbury. Or, sorry, the Bishop of London, who had jurisdiction. We are Vicar Apostolic of London, had jurisdiction over the, uh, uh, the Catholic churches here. So, too, the Anglican Bishop of London had jurisdiction over the Anglican churches uh, on this side. And this led to a very strange occurrence, which we, we live with today. And that is that uh, in England, as in the rest of Europe, notaries public were originally licensed by either or both the Pope or the Holy Roman Emperor. As the Middle Ages went along, uh, the Pope delegated this to the national primate. So, in other words, the Archbishop of Reims in France, or Toledo in Spain, or whomever, licensed the notary's public. In England, it was the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Reformation comes along. The Archbishop of Canterbury holds on to that, to that particular right, and he has it today. In England today, notaries public are licensed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. In uh, the colonies, as I told you, the governor was the commissary of the Archbishop of, of uh, Canterbury. That included, of London, that included the right to uh, appoint and register notaries public. But of course, he's got other things to do, so who does it in reality? The secretary of the colony. Independence comes. No more secretary of the colony, you have the secretary of state in each of the states. Who licenses notaries public today? The Secretary of State. 
So when you see a notary public with his little license of the Secretary of State, know that that goes all the way back in an unbroken chain to be the Secretary of State, Secretary of the Colony, Governor of the Colony, Bishop of London, Archbishop of Canterbury, to the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... I'll tell uh, that to the, there's the evangelical notary public I know. I'll make sure to mention that to him. <laughs> yeah, basically, if one were paranoid, one would see him as one of the Pope's minions. <laughs> well, if we were following the propaganda at the time, certainly. Fortunately, you're not you're not a a, a paranoid, so you won't do that to him. You can tell. <laughs> but seriously, uh, but the idea of bringing a bishop over here was a big one, and interestingly enough. While it was a very popular idea in the northern states amongst Anglicans in the north, and and absolutely hated by uh, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and so on in the north, in the south, the Anglicans were very much against a bishop over here. Can you guess why? Who ran the vestries that ran the parishes? It was the wealthy planters. They did not want some bishop coming in and telling them even though they were supposed to be loyal uh, loyal Anglicans. And also, you stop and think about uh, the Anglicanism of men like Washington, like Jefferson, like Madison. It wasn't very deep. So the idea of suddenly having a, uh, a fellow confirming and ordaining and doing all this sort of thing, no thanks. So that, that was one of the, there were a number of weird fault lines prior to the revolution that fed into it. That was one of them. So, when the war was over, uh, in the north, the Anglican Church was decimated. It wasn't extinct, but it was pretty decimated, uh, because a lot of the, the loyalists had fled. In New York, uh, it was the same, although two prominent loyalist families stayed, the Baileys and the Seatons. And we can feel very glad that they did, because they gave us St. Elizabeth Ann Seaton and her husband. So not all the loyalists left, but about 100,000 did. Uh, and that decimated the uh, the Anglican churches in the north, although they were still in existence. In the south, uh, they suddenly had to do without government assistance, starting with Virginia. Maryland and South Carolina, they continued to receive aid somewhat longer. In Georgia, there were only three of them at the end of the war anyway, and North Carolina was the same. So, um, but at any rate, these scattered congregations had to form a, a government of their own. And they met in 1789 and started what we call the Protestant Episcopal Church. Episcopal because they elected a bishop. Protestant because they weren't Catholic. And they sent a man called Samuel Seabury, who had been a loyalist but conformed to the new regime. They sent him over to get ordained a bishop, not unlike Bishop Carroll, or had to be. What was interesting with him was that he gets to England, and in those days, there was a law that if you ordained a bishop or consecrated a bishop, you had to swear allegiance to King George. He couldn't do that as an American. So he went to Scotland. Now, you may remember that with the Glorious Revolution, the Episcopate in the Church of Scotland was thrown out. But it survived. And Anglicans in Scotland tended to be Jacobites as well. They kept on their line of bishops. Today we call them the uh, Scottish Episcopal Church. They're still around with bishopesses and all the other great things of modern Anglicanism. But the thing is that uh, at that time, they were still loyal to Bonnie Prince Charlie. So this is, he's still alive at this point. So what happens? 
They don't ask him to swear allegiance to King George. And they consecrate him a bishop and send him back. Obviously, from our point of view, it didn't matter anyway because of Anglican orders. But <laughs> right. Nevertheless, it's still Never a very mind. interesting side history to this. So, yeah. Now, part of the, the other propaganda that's made up is, of course, they're always anticipating Lincoln in our films and depictions of the revolutionaries and when we talk about slavery. Mel Gibson's movie, The Patriot, depicts black slaves flocking to the side of the American revolutionaries. Now, at the same time, Britain had a strong anti-slavery movement. And it, it, shortly after the, the American Revolution, England would ban the slave trade. How did black slaves in America view the British, and how did the British treat them in general? In what, what side did they fight on? Well, I can tell you. They, um, the British had abolished slavery in England in 1772. And Lord Dunmore, who was the governor of Virginia at the time the, the revolution started out, offered freedom to any slave who would join the British Army. And that was the start of a unit called Lord Dunmore's Ethiopian Legion. And both free and slave in particular flocked to British arms. Now, this was not necessarily true in New England, where you had uh, a class of black freemen and some notable blacks in the rebel army. But in the rest of the colonies, they, were, they tended to be very much pro-British. And the interesting thing was that uh, when the treaty was signed between uh, the Crown and the new United States, it was agreed that um, if you could prove your ownership of a given slave, you could take him back. A number of Washington's and Jefferson's slaves had fled to the British. But uh, the commander of New York, General Carleton, refused to do that. And so he took the blacks with him when he left when, on evacuation day. And those blacks today, their descendants can be found in Canada and in Sierra Leone on the west coast of Africa, which is one of the other of the, three, of the four countries that owe their origin to the American Revolution. Those four countries being the United States, of course, Anglo-Canada, the Bahamas, and Sierra Leone. So, you know, I'm not going to pretend to you that uh, they were colorblind or anything like this. They most certainly weren't. But the fact was that the Crown had made a deal with them and they kept it. You come and fight for the king and you're free. End of story. And they did. Uh, and as I say, it was particularly upsetting and annoying because a number of slaves owned by Washington and Jefferson left with the British from New York. Also... Now, you know, people are losing property backwards and forwards these days. One of the things that was not lost on the British, though, were the cries of freedom from the colonies because of the slave owning, which was universal in the colonies at that time. There were no free states at that point. Every single colony had slavery. And uh, Samuel Johnson, as you might expect, because of his kind of uh, caustic wit, he, uh, he was constantly dumping on the rebels. And he said, you know, it's, it's wonderful that these people are all for freedom for themselves, uh, but not for their slaves. So it's not like that was lost on the British public. Indeed. Often when we try to reevaluate the revolution or make uh, at least cautions to it, the objection will be made that the, the revolutionaries were Freemasons, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Madison, etc. And they'll meet the objection and say, oh, well, that didn't mean anything back then. It was just a club where you could speak with confidence because everything you said was secret and you took vows to that, etc. 
But is this a realistic picture of the Masonic Association of all the Founding Fathers, especially given that Jefferson and Franklin are both initiated into the Lodge of the Grand Orient in Paris, and Franklin as well is noted for his involvement in the Hellfire Club? Well, to answer your question, I would say that, firstly, even what you said, places where they could talk in secret and were protected by oath, that by itself is no small thing. Uh, we know, for instance, that Joseph Warren, Dr. Warren who was killed at Bunker Hill, was the master of the lodge that uh, a number of the British officers, including General Gage, belonged to. And it's pretty well affirmed that he picked up a lot of very useful intelligence that way. So that's, that's one thing. It is also true that all of the all of the Continental uh, Generals, uh, Major Generals or above, were Master Masons or above, with one exception. Said individual was an a, a initiated Mason, but he wasn't a Master Mason. And that one exception was Benedict Arnold. Uh, so I guess he felt kind of left out or something. But uh, there's also the fact that, to be honest with you, the committees of correspondence were sort of like the political affairs committees of their uh, respective lodges. So, no, it, it played a very, very big role in the uh, in the war. Now, there is a sense, of course, too, however, masonry is part and parcel of Anglo-Saxondom. I think it's fair to say, and this is going to sound a little bit odd, but I'll be clear in a moment, that masonry, in the sense of uh, a vague doctrine of conduct over creed, that is to say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a nice person, which the very fact that that doesn't sound at all surprising as I say it, that is as much a part of who we are as Catholicism is with Italians and Spaniards. We are taking what I've just said, naturalism, uh, conduct over creed. We are, we are the Anglo-Saxon, the Anglosphere. We are the most Masonic peoples on earth. More Masonic than a French member of the Grand Orient, because it's ingrained in us. Uh, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're a nice person. And mind you, it wasn't quite that way, way back then even. It's been a, a slow, gradual, leaching out process. Until now, whether you call it masonry, or organized naturalism, or Unitarianism, or whatever you want to call it, it's really what we all believe at the back of it. Even if consciously we hold some other view. The proof of the pudding is that if you examine, let's say you call yourself a Catholic, and you examine, oh, I don't know, the Crusades, the Inquisition, or something, you immediately tend to judge them by the standards of today. You know, where five men can change the nature of marriage. Our standards. It shows you how non-Catholic we really are. Even if you Agree in theory, agree intellectually, well, yes, that is the Catholic thing to do. Your gut reaction is different. Because it's part of who we are. Just as you bring me an Italian or a Spaniard or a Mexican or a French Mason, their gut reactions will be far more Catholic than yours or mine could ever be. So I would say Masonry has played a huge part in our history. But such a successful part that it's no longer really even necessary as an institution. Which you can see in their falling numbers. I just did an interview recently with uh, a priest who studied um, the occult and masonry and other influences in our country and others 
And he's and I and I brought that that well usually they say we'll get the Masons control over the Masons their memberships dying they're selling off all their property and he said of course because they won they accomplished what they set out to do. No, there's no. I mean, there's so much. Uh, it's who we are, and the thing is, you take you or me or anybody you know, put us in a position of power, and we would act as though we belong to some deep dark conspiracy. Whereas really, we're simply act, acting according to our cultural bent. So, uh, I would uh, I would say that on the one hand, the Masonic element of it is easy to dismiss in one sense, and insane to dismiss in another. I know that's paradoxical, but it's a paradoxical subject. Indeed, certainly. Yeah. So, maybe this is the million dollar question, but would we be better off had we remained under Great Britain? For example, Americans are really attached to the right to bear arms. I am too, actually. In 1998, the British Parliament annulled the provisions of the English Bill of Rights, allowing gun ownership to all Protestants, on the grounds that, since Parliament issued the Bill of Rights, it could take them away. Uh, Americans, as we mentioned, you know, we love our right to bear arms, most of us, um, not the government so much, and... You know, we have that protected by the Constitution, at least it appears. Frankly, I don't think constitutions really mean anything. Once they decide they go, they go. But nevertheless, so would America really have been better off if it had remained a colony and become a dominion of Great Britain as Canada and Australia rather than become an independent country? Especially with the, recently the Queen just signed off on gay marriage as well in England. Well, firstly, there are a couple of things you got to bear in mind. Just as we would be different, so would Britain. Because remember that the defeat of the revolution meant the defeat of King George's policies at home. The Whig oligarchy got what they wanted. And since that time, you've seen in a slow evolutionary manner a division in British governance from the very top to the very bottom between what we could call the ceremonial and the practical sides. And the very top, you've got the Queen and you've got the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, I mean, the Queen can sort of alleviate things, but it's the Prime Minister at the end of the day who's going to make the decision. Uh, you've got the, in Parliament, you've got Commons versus Lords, Privy Council versus Cabinet, uh, Lords Lieutenant versus County Chairman, Sheriffs versus Chief Constables, Mayors versus Town Council Chairman. All the way down, there's this rigid distinction. Now, that distinction had not occurred at the time of the revolution, which is why all of those officials that we have, you know, below the level of, of uh, uh, Congress slash Parliament, all of our versions of those offices retain the powers they have. In England, the sheriff has become a purely ceremonial individual. Our sheriffs are like the sheriffs in England in the 18th century and in the Middle Ages. We still have grand juries and coroners, all of which they've either gotten rid of or made ceremonial. So I think that had that not occurred, and again, bear in mind this is a very, very, the whole what-if game is difficult because there are all kinds of factors that are being left out. At least of them is who would have been born and who wouldn't have. <laughs> but... Uh, there are several things I can say. If we had not... Uh, become independent, Catholic emancipation would have not been delayed as long as it was in the British Empire. George III would not have felt betrayed by Louis XVI and Carlos III. 
and he was until then very much in favor of it, uh, you would probably not have had the division of which I spoke. So in all likelihood, the king would have retained a great deal more practical authority, well, not practical authority, but practical power than Queen Elizabeth has today. She has very little. Uh, they say that if uh, Parliament passed a law abolishing the monarchy, she'd have to sign it. So it would be a very different Britain and a very different monarchy that we would be attached to. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the loss of the first British Empire is what uh, sparked the gaining of the second British Empire. Australia, New Zealand, uh, and then all, all that sort of thing, and the Napoleonic Wars. Now, if France had not bankrupted herself on uh, the American Revolution, would there have been a French Revolution? If, when the famine of 1788 occurred, all the money that was blown over here and in the West Indies and Africa and India, if that money had instead been around to relieve the poor, if Louis XVI had been able to continue his reform project, which was ongoing and which came to a screeching halt because of the revolution, or the American Revolution, um, what sort of a difference would that have made? These are all what ifs we don't know. But if there had been no French Revolution, uh, no Napoleonic Wars, and that, alongside the loss of the American Revolution, was the beginning of the Second, the Second British Empire. So would you have had the rush for colonies of the 19th century? I don't know. If you hadn't had the French Revolution, uh, you probably wouldn't have had the 1848 revolutions and all that. Uh, Contrary-wise, you wouldn't have had the American Civil War. Probably this continent would not be English-speaking sea to sea. And again, these are all what-ifs, and the more you speculate, the wilder they get. But, you know, take a gander. No, uh, no world wars, perhaps. No communism, no fascism. But also the rate of uh, industrial and technological advance would have been slower. Why? Because so much of that advance takes place under wartime pressure. If you don't have wars, you don't have, the, uh, you don't have such quick advances. So, I mean, obviously, would we be better off? I don't know. It would be different. That I can promise you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as it was, we got Catholic emancipation here earlier than in Britain because they simply couldn't keep us down due to what France and Spain had done. The King of Spain paid for the first Catholic church in New York City, St. Peter's, where Mother Seton would be received. Um... It's hard to say. And in looking at it, you have to bear in mind that the Catholics of the day, I will go so far as to say that the rank and file Catholics in this country were, uh, the majority of them were probably loyalists. Not so loyalist for most of them as to go into exile. Some did. Uh, the ones in the Mohawk Valley were chased out. They formed several, Mo several uh, loyalist regiments. Father John McKenna, who had been their pastor, became their chaplain. And they came back and visited their uh, former neighbors in very unpleasant ways. Um, but if none of that had happened, who's to say? There would have been no Anglo-Canada, maybe no Sierra Leone. It's very, you can't really play what if easily. All you can really do is look at the issues involved and try to figure out what part you would have gravitated toward had you been there at the time. Uh, 
because remember, when you're trying to discover the best you can, the justice of a given cause, you can't really look at the outcome, because the people living then didn't know the outcome. A good analogy, uh, us now. <laughs> we don't know how this is going to play out. Maybe the great play of 2019 would never have happened if only dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Maybe five men would not have de decided that, you know, we should all be in drag. <laughs> and so you would never know, or maybe, but um, nevertheless, no, but it certainly it, would have been different. It's, it would have been different. That's all we're ever given to know. We're never given to know how it would have been different, just that it would have been. And similarly, when you look at us today, I mean, we look back at the Revolution, or the Jacobite Wars, the English Civil Wars, anything you want, any conflict you like. It seems very clear to us, because we, we know how it played out. We don't know how it would have worked if it had played out differently, but we know how it worked out as it worked out. We don't know how our service is going to work out. Um, we just don't, and we're stuck. We're, you, you, you can make predictions. You can try to figure things out, and indeed you have to, out of, for prudence's sake, but you don't know. You do the best you can, and if the best you can isn't enough, well, then you die. and go to heaven or hell. <laughs> But we don't whitewash what did happen as if it was good when really it has not been. That's See, that's the thing. Especially, we should never try to whitewash what happened because we happen to be the beneficiaries of it. This is another important thing to understand about history. It's difficult for Americans because we are taught history as a kind of salvation mythos, you see, where you got like the Old Testament, where the Pilgrim Fathers came across and uh, established the Shining City on the Hill, uh, they're coming here being like Exodus. They left Pharaoh in London. They uh, immediately subjected the Canaanites they found, the Indians, the French, and the Spanish. Uh, and then you have the new dispensation, the New Testament, which of course was the revolution. Uh, the Holy Ghost brought the Constitution in its beak. And so it goes. Well, okay, I get it. I get it. But the problem is and, and a good deal of this, I must say, also is part of our lingering Calvinist sense that we always have to be right all the time. We must always, if we are right, we have always been right, we should always be right. And if we lose, it's because we weren't right. Well, let me tell you, that's nice, but it's not reality. And the sad truth of the matter, it is a sad truth, is that everyone alive today, is the beneficiary, somehow or other, some way or other, of an historical injustice of some kind or other. It's just the way it is. It's part of the human condition. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. The fact that, uh, you know, your great-great-great-great-uncle Morty was a sheep stealer, and that's why you're not starving to death. Right? It's just the way it is. Similarly, the, the, need to, the need to demonize is another thing we have to get rid of. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there aren't people, places, and things that are not, objectively speaking, evil. Absolutely, there are. But we tend to paint with a very broad brush. And then when we do that and we leave big lacunae, I'll give you an example. Hitler was a horrible and disgusting man. He killed many good people and he made a number of martyr saints. You know, when people go on about the numbers and die in the Holocaust, it's this, it's that, it's lower, it's higher. Look, 
He killed St. Maximin and Mary Colby. Any further questions? But, having said that, we're brought up to have a visceral disgust of Adolf Hitler in a way that we're not Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong. Hitler was objectively evil, with taking the widest estimates, 11 million people to his credit. But Stalin killed at least 20 million. And Mao, several hundreds of millions. And that doesn't bother us. We don't have the same deep loathing and disgust for the latitude gentlemen that we do for Adolf. That's wrong. But simply, flat, wrong. The reason, of course, is simple. We don't feel so bad about Uncle Joe because he was our ally in World War II. And since we're always good ourselves, our allies can't be bad. And with Uncle, with, uh, Uncle Mao, it's even worse. We made money off him and his successors. And that's even more important if you're an American. See, the Puritans have left us a few goodies in our minds. And one of them is that if it's profitable, it's good. If it's legal, it's moral. If it's profitable, it's good. Indeed, so a million dead civilians in Korea, uh, hundreds of thousands of dead civilians between Afghanistan and Iraq, Vietnam, etc. It's for oil. It's good. It's what we need. Well, it's collateral damage at worst. The problem is, well, it's your people. That's... Every man's collateral damage is another man's son. Yep. And actually, to tell you the truth, I wouldn't even feel so bad about it if it actually had done us any good. (laughs) (laughs) It made us enemies with nothing to show for it. Right. And now those enemies will do anything to get at us, and I suspect will. But fortunately, um, I, I mean, when you just stop and think of the lunacy with which we conduct these things, Every jurisdiction in the West, not just America, but in Europe and so on, mm-hmm. brings in gay marriage. You have that many more recruiters, recruits to the jihad. Who, when you have a dominant class for whom their ideology is more important than reality, you have a dominant class who are going to lead you to destruction. It is more important for the people that rule us now to have women in combat than to win battles. Nobody could say that either the founding fathers of this country or their loyalist opponents were that crazy. Quite the contrary. Within their limits, within what they did, what they had, within what they knew, um, they were faced at the end of the revolution with several major problems. One was religious disunity, and the other was the lack of a king. Now, in a sense, in a, in a psychological sense, the king had been even more important in the 13 colonies prior to the war than he was in England, because in England, he was the head of the state church. It was that further binding effect. In the colonies, the crown was the only unifying thing there was among all these disparate people. So now that's gone. And the founders have to come up with something that will replace that. Well, they were fortunate in the sense that there was a shared moral code inherited from Catholicism. A Protestant Catholic Jew, we all believe that the same things are right or wrong. That was a huge, huge foundation to build on. The second, though, they created this religion of the state. And I mean, created very, I mean, you read what Noah Webster had to say about it. It was not done unconsciously, but it took the place of the king. Just like everything we do today on the 4th of July, all those fireworks, and the processions, the bell ringing, the speeches, and all this done for the king's birthday. That's exactly where we got it. And similarly, we veiled the, the flag, 
and the Constitution itself, the Liberty Bell, all these things, with the demi-holiness that befits a king. So with, with, with scrap, scraps and bits and pieces of classical learning, with the best they do, these people put together at the end of the Constitution. And they, they started a regime that, for better or worse, managed to plop along fairly uh, well with the single exception of the war between the states, uh, fairly easily. And then it became an empire. And then in the 60s, the moral consensus collapsed, and the rulership became what we have now. It's a wonderful story and a horrible story all at the same time. Certainly. And there's another wonderful story and a horrible story that predates all these particular event, events, which you've related a couple of times, namely the Jacobite Rebellion. <clears throat> 1688, the completion of the English Civil War in a certain sense, where James II is removed from the throne by a coup uh, internally, which uh, is then spun into the Glorious Revolution. And so his family is then living in exile with Louis the Fourteenth. And all because of the birth of his Catholic sons. I think in general, most historians agree that the, even the Whig party would have tolerated James had it not been for the birth of a Catholic heir, uh, you know, James III. So, so James then, if he's in exile, tries to fight at the Battle of Boyne, loses, and is back with Louis XIV in France, where he dies. And then James III is raised up, and you have different conflicts, which we won't try to narrate here as it take far too much time. Although I did talk about them in my Aude Safari podcast, I believe it was episode six, or if I was right around the time of Scottish independence, I'll link that in the interview notes, where I spent a lot of time talking about Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobite Revolt. But nevertheless, in 1745, his son, uh, James III's son, Charles, who had been raised in Italy, in Rome, <clears throat> that uh, he, he grew up and then you know, took up the cause during the Seven Years' War. Uh, with very weak French help, if only the French could give as much help to him as they gave to the American Revolution, things would have been different. But oh, never, yeah. nevertheless, he arrives, at, you know, the French canceled the invasion after some ships were damaged. Char Charles did not. And so he oh. arrived with a few men. It's really an amazing seven. story. Seven men. The seven men of Moynock. <laughs> wow. It, it's an amazing story for anyone who wants to take the time to, to read into the major history. But for all that, there's, you know, different things where the historians make lacuna. There's a fairly decent review in Neil Oliver's History of Scotland, which is on the BBC. He makes what I consider some errors, but nevertheless, it's still a fairly good overview. So I'll link that up, too, for people who are interested. But nevertheless, so Bonnie Prince Charlie fails in 1745, fails to retake the crown. Had he done it, we might never have had an American Revolution. There might not have been those grievances there. Maybe they would have been, and who knows how it would have played out. You know, We don't want to go back to the what-if game, as we mentioned earlier. But there's an interesting event that took place where the Continental Congress, apparently, considered offering the crown to Bonnie Prince Charlie. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Well, that was 1778, I believe, when uh, so it was fairly late along in the war. And uh, the prince was living in Florence at the time. And a group of, uh, of representatives of the Continental Congress, uh, whose names escaped me, luckily for you, uh, approached him. One of them was from Maryland, so he might have been a Catholic. And they, um, they offered him the crown of the United States. Now, of course, had he accepted, it would have changed the entirety of the war. One thing, as I mentioned to you, the Jacobites who were over here tended to be loyalist. And there was a, uh, a General uh, Kenzie who, after Culloden, after the 45, uh, 
had drifted around Europe fighting for various armies. And he was hired to be uh, to lead a, a regiment they raised here called the Royal Highland Immigrants. Well, <laughs> he would always angrily deny that he was a British officer. He said that he was a mercenary in the service of the Elector of Hanover. <laughs> So, <laughs> and he always toasted the king over the water and all those sorts of things, you know. Well, there was a lot of that. It's interesting that uh, they raised an Irish unit during the siege of Boston, the revolution, uh, with the loyalists from all over New England that sort of uh, uh, crushed into the city. They raised three units of loyalists amongst the, the, the able-bodied men there. One of them was Irish. They were called the Loyal Irish Associators. But... They wore the white cockade, which was the symbol of the House of Stuart. <laughs> so, loyalist in quotes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they were loyalists. See, people have often had, you know, why did they do that? Why did they fight for King George? Well, a couple of reasons. The biggest is that it was not a question of who should sit on the throne, but whether there was going to be a throne at all. See, that's that's the thing. That's the thing whether there'd be a throne at all. So had Body Prince Charlie, or as he was then, Charles III, accepted the proposal and come over, other than uh, we hope that he would have found a wife or to give him an heir quickly. Uh, <laughs> other than that, uh, it would have completely changed everything. I... Uh, in unimaginable ways. But he didn't do it. He didn't want to do it. And there, there were, he followed the war very, very closely, apparently, and was amused at British defeats. But, of course, bearing in mind that he knew Sir William Howe was a Whig, that's, you know, there are doubtless reasons for that. Um, had he done so, who knows, he might have given him a new leaf on life, or a new lease on life, or in his condition, he might not have survived the trip across the Atlantic. Who can say? Uh, because he was in very bad shape toward the end of his life. Uh, we were discussing earlier, you know, what a horrible, horrible thing to have happen. You're that young, you have literally victory within your grasp, and you know, you know what to do. And you're overruled by your lieutenants. And things fall apart. And you're never able to do it again. The closest I can think of is maybe an old rock star. <laughs> it's really, really sad. The other thing that's funny is that, as I say, Cardinal York, his brother, succeeded to his claims when he died in 1788. And Cardinal York was cheesed out of making any appointments in, in the Americas, by in the Anglo-Americas, by uh, John Carroll. But this is thing happened. The French Revolution overwhelmed northern Italy, overwhelmed Rome. And in 1800, I guess, 1798, Cardinal York found himself absolutely penniless. Everything he had had been taken. George III sent him a pension. And if you go to the Vatican today, you'll find two things. I was just there last week. I was there last year. I know what you're up. You've got the monument to the Stuart Kings in St. Peter's, and then you've got their tomb in the grotto. And George IV paid for those. 
So it's uh, because he, he died in uh, 1806 uh, or 1807, New York. And then, of course, his claims passed out of the House of Savoy and have drifted through the female line through various royal houses, but now ending up with the Duke of Bavaria. But that brings up another interesting question. Jacobites did not recognize the Union of Parliaments of 1707 between England and Scotland, because, of course, Queen Anne was not, as far as they were concerned, the rightful queen, couldn't sign off on it. Well, all right. But they didn't recognize George III either. Now, legally speaking, it's not the 4th of July that made us an independent nation. It's the Treaty of Paris, 1783, where the king absolved us of our allegiance. But if you're a dyed-in-the-wool Jacobite... <laughs> Charles III didn't sign off on nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, by the same token, neither did he make war against the French, which is what got uh, Britain and everything from the Alleghenies to the Mississippi. So the argument can be made that if you're a true blue Jacobite and you live anywhere from Georgia to Maine, your rightful king is the Duke of Bavaria. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I was born in Connecticut, so maybe I've got a claim to that. I was born in New York. The, uh, of course, I'm of French-Canadian descent. But I, I live in a city founded by the American ally, Carlos III. Right. I can't take it. It's too much. <laughs> you know, that, that goes back, though, to what we were saying earlier. There is no monarchical tradition that fits this country, because we are a creation of a Republican revolution. Uh, we have, if you know where to look, all sorts of remnants, bits and pieces of our monarchical past. And not just from Britain. I mean, here in the Southwest, our land law is Spanish. Uh, to say nothing of the churches and other institutions that we still have. That we're by. The kings of France, the same. Uh, and then various other monarchs. I mean, you look at, uh, if you're Catholic, you uh, look at the church of the Midwest. Well, for independence until 1918, the Emperor of Austria, the King of Bavaria, literally dumped millions of dollars into the Catholic Church of this country. As you know, gratitude is not one of our virtues. We have many others in this country, but gratitude has never been one of them. If you gave it to us, we deserved it. If we took it from you, you deserved it. Indeed. <laughs> the, uh, but seriously... There are all sorts of things, bits and pieces of that sort around. But in terms of an American monarchical tradition that fits the whole country, no such creature. So that's why I said earlier, if you expect a model of monarchy that would fit this country, I have none to offer. The other thing, too, to bear in mind also is that the European monarchies, the Christian monarchies, which are obviously the ones that I'm interested in, they were all the product of literally centuries upon centuries of development. European Christian monarchy is what happened when you had three things encountering each other. Classical civilization, the invading Germanics, and the faith. And the long organic evolution that those produced was European Christian monarchy. This country Thinking of a monarchy here is putting the cart before the horse. We don't have the materials for it. You know, 
I don't want to go so far as Berlin Vandenberg, who made the rather nasty comment that, uh, Chris was German, so he could say it about his own people. But he said, uh, the Germans cease to have kings, or they cease to be a kingly people. <laughs> Which is kind of a nasty slap, I think. Right. But if you say anything about your own people, you can get away with it. Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't want to say that about the Germans myself, but he's welcome. So similarly, in a real sense, we do have what we deserve here. That moral consensus I spoke about, which was the real thing gluing us together, we threw that away back in uh, back in the 60s. So what we have now is the blind leading the blind. And I have no, there is no political answer to it. There is no uh, economic answer to it. There is no military answer to it. None of those things will save this country. So what can save the country then? Or what can save us, really, is real, the real question. Obviously, we've admitted we're both monarchists. We can't fashion a monarchist tradition in this country where it doesn't exist. And no. nobody where everyone's bred that monarchy is tyranny, kings are tyrants, therefore monarchy is evil. But, of course, when you elect the monarchy, it's okay. <laughs> he, yes. he was monarch for four years and that sort of thing. So then the question that I, is, what, what can we do as, as monarchists, as Catholics in the face of five people now now saying getting dragged basically or, or various other things worse things that are going to come well the first thing is to practice the Catholic faith and to attempt to evangelize pure and simple that was the building block of anything decent that's what made Christendom but don't expect to see it in your lifetime you're not going to if you're if you were uh, you know Theodoric of York and you're born in uh, 613 and you die in 681, well, <laughs> and now what are you? Well, on this side of the grave, if you're lucky, there's a bit of bones left somewhere, someplace. Other than that, poof, but Theodoric of York, if you made it to purgatory, or please God to heaven then you're doing something really useful in ways we can't imagine here. More than that, you've got to be faithful and witness. And that means sometimes abandoning our native cowardice when people ask you questions. Because you don't know how you're going to affect what or who. My father, God rest him, had a lot of funny stories with points and morals. And one of my favorites is a story about the very wealthy Catholic who died and went to heaven. And he, uh, he goes up before the pearly gates. He says, uh, St. Peter says, welcome to heaven. You made it. Great to have you here. Now, mind you, this fellow was very wealthy and endowed churches and hospitals and schools and libraries and done all sorts of things. And so he said, can I ask you a question, St. Peter? I said, sure. How did you guys like the churches I built? They were nice. We appreciated them. But what about the hospitals? We're good. Saved a few hundred thousand people from the supply exempt, but they, they were good. We like that. The stools? Oh, they, 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 they were fine. St. Peter, look, I, I said you're holding back. Tell me, what was my single greatest achievement? You really want to know? Yeah. All right, I'll tell you. Do you remember when you were 14 years old and you were standing on the corner of Hollywood and Wilcox? And that that station wagon pulled up, and the driver said, hey, kid, you know how to get to Sunset and Vine? And you told them, and they got there in time. 
that was your moment. Then you shone. <laughs> well, you know, of course, he spent the rest of his life doing what he did. But his greatest single achievement was something he didn't recognize. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing we have to understand. We have to do what our faith, what our duty, and to the degree that we have any, our honor, require of us. Um, we can't do more, and we dare not do less. We don't know what the results will be. I'll give you another example. Culloden. Terrible defeat, right? Horrible. Terrible thing to happen. A 16-year-old boy fought for King Charlie that day and survived the battle. And he grew up to become the great Bishop Hay, the vicar apostolic of Scotland, who saved God knows how many souls. But he wouldn't have been Bishop Hay if he hadn't fought for Monaghan's Charlie. We don't know the results of what we do. When um, Lord Baltimore set up Maryland, he uh, thought it would be a safe refuge for Catholics. Well, it wasn't that. But there are still churches in the south of Maryland that owe their origins to those days, and a kind of English-speaking Catholicism in that part of the state that's unlike anything unless you've been there. It's unlike anything you've experienced. But that colony sent out a couple of daughter colonies. One went to Kentucky, the area they call the Holy Land. Same last names as in the southern part of Maryland. But the towns have names like Loretto and Holy Cross and St. Francis. And these were settled just before and after the Revolution. So these are these are Catholic and American in a way we're not used to. And again, it's a different world. Sent out another colony to a place called Locust Grove, Georgia. Didn't do so well. Broke up fairly quick. But the descendant of that colony in the female line is very famous today. Flannery O'Connor. No Lord Baltimore, no wise blood. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. And on that note, we have to draw to a close. Oh, by the way, before we go, I ended it abruptly. Where can people go to find more of your work and and, uh, more of your writing? Well, you can always put Charles A. Coulomb into into, uh, Google and see what hops up at you. But you'll see a bunch of my books for sale on Amazon. Tumblr House are my current publisher. Um... I've got, uh, I've done True Restoration Radio's a number of interviews with me. Uh, so has Catholicism.org. You can find a lot of my stuff there. Taki.com, uh, whatever it is, Takinet. Uh, I have a number of my older articles. The American Thinker have some. Uh, you find them scattered around. Um, I no longer have a website. Uh, I don't blog at the moment. So the, I'm afraid that, uh, you know, how can I put it? Writing for free takes as much effort as writing for pay. That's right. So, uh, and I, I don't have that great a desire to uh, tell my story. Uh, also, you might go to, uh, um, no, no, that should do it, I think. Um, but keep your eyes out. Uh, oh, I've had a couple of interviews recently on uh, Church Militant. Okay. And I've uh, done some with Christian Niles as well, separately. If I can find those, I'll link those up as well. All right. And then I've done one with this fellow. Oh, McAllister Arts. You could, if you want me to lecture, you can get a hold of it. I've got a, a web presence. Uh, let me see. What else? Oh, there's this fellow, Ryan Grant, up in Idaho. Yeah. I did it. 
just now, in fact. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Mm, thank you for having me. It's always great to be able to spout off and sound as though I know something. <laughs> Same here. God bless. You too.